Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. The last time on the podcast, during episode number six, we talked about the East German film crew and the Doug Hegdahl story. During this episode, we're going to pick up the story back in the prison they called the Plantation. The Vietnamese were waging a propaganda war against the United States in 1969. That propaganda war included many bizarre twists and turns along the way. During this episode, we are going to do our best to describe to you what was happening during that time. Releasing some of our POWs early was part of that propaganda strategy. The Vietnamese hoped that the world public opinion would view them as being compassionate by releasing some of our prisoners. Meanwhile, our POWs had organized themselves in North Vietnam into a military unit, including a chain of command by using the TAP code and other communication strategies to do so. One of their orders from the senior officers in charge was, do not take early release. Ultimately, some POWs did accept that early release and came home early before the end of the war. Doug Hegdahl was offered early release but refused it. He wanted to stay with his fellow POWs, a heroic stance for anyone, let alone a 21-year-old young man. Ultimately, Doug was finally ordered to take the offer of early release by his senior officers because they felt that the value he could bring by getting out with 256 names of POWs and MIAs was more valuable than the propaganda value the Vietnamese would gain. I know this to be the case because my father personally passed that order to Doug to accept the offer of early release. Before we get back to the story, remember, the mission of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast is to spread stories of American heroes. You can help us to achieve this goal in several ways. First, download, listen, and enjoy the episodes. Next, give the podcast a five-star review and leave a written review on the podcast site. Podcast players decide which podcast to recommend to listeners based on these reviews. Finally, forward the Yankee Air Pirate podcast to your family and friends and ask them to enjoy it and pass it on to others as well. If you have any questions about an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, or if you just like to say hello to the Yankee Air Pirate, you can contact us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again. We really appreciate our listeners. Now, let's pick up the story again. Back in the plantation prison, the propaganda machine was moving full speed ahead. Hey, Dad, how's it going today? Oh, magnificent day out there. Uh, great to be with you again, and I appreciate you sitting in that, down to go through another episode with me today. Last time uh, during episode six, uh, we talked about the Doug Hegdahl story, which was uh, fascinating. Uh, people are really interested in that. Today, our mission, if you choose to accept this mission, 
is I really feel like we need to do a better job describing in more detail the propaganda war that was being waged by the North Vietnamese um, in 1967, 68, and 69. People in my age bracket, people even as old as me, don't understand what was going on. I was only 11 years old at the end of the war, but I've gone back and I've studied it. And so my goal for the for this session today is that we can help people understand what the Vietnamese were doing uh, to us during that time period. If people don't understand the propaganda war, they have no chance of understanding what happened to us because that's what it was all about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll contrast the war in Vietnam. The, the contrast to that is the war in 1990-91, Desert Storm and uh, Desert Shield. That's a war people in my age bracket uh, may know a little more about. That war led by General Schwarzkopf. Uh, General Schwarzkopf had the support of our government. He was able to bring in uh, the equipment and the manpower that he needed. He assembled that over a six to seven month uh, period started off with a one-month air campaign to soften up uh, the Iraqi forces in Kuwait. After one month of an air campaign, um, the, the ground war took just a few days, and we won the war. We had Iraq out of Kuwait, and we had minimal uh, U.S. casualties. That's the power of the United States military. That's what we're capable of doing if our government will, will allow us to do the job the right way. Uh, I think you know a leader that was part of that uh, desert storm, uh, General Mattis. He was uh, the battalion commander, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines uh, during that campaign. We knew uh, Jim Mattis personally as a Marine and as a friend. He, he was an amazing leader because he is one of the few I know of that started reading history, I guess, from the first printed word that he could find. He maintained that there was nothing new under the sun and that if you studied history, when a position or a situation presented itself to you, if you had read history, you'd recognize that here we go again and you'd know how to handle it. Right. That That's a, that's a good lesson. So, Bringing up General Mattis's name, I, I sure would be able, uh, love to uh, be able to talk to General Mattis on one of these uh, Yankee Air Pirate podcasts, so I think I may ask you to give him a call. He'll probably be down here peddling his book at the bookmark. All right, well, let's get together with him. So uh, that's the big lesson that we want to talk about today. We want to talk about why we got bogged down for almost 10 years in Vietnam, losing over 58,000 U.S. lives. So that's the topic. It's a very serious topic, and we're going to explore it in depth today. First, though, uh, I got a lot of feedback um, after the last episode where you talked about uh, living with Doug Hegdahl. Everybody knows the Doug Hegdahl story now. And they're really fascinating with him. He, he was a, an amazing young man. And, and still to this day, he's an, an amazing man. Uh, I got a few questions for you I want to go through during the lightning round. Um, people want to know, when, when you're living in such a closed space um, and, and you have nothing else to do, what kind of conversations did you and Doug have uh, during the day? What, what did you all do to pass your time? 
Oh, the, the assumption is when you're in jail like that that you're totally without anything to do, and if you are, that's your fault. Because we had to divide up the day. There was not enough time in the day to accomplish everything we wanted to. The first and most important thing was operational. We had to try to establish communication, conduct intelligence to find out what was going on in the camp, what they were after so we could deny it to them, uh, who was new in the camp, get the names of newly shot down people, memorize them, come up with escape plans. So that was a third of our day right there. And another third of the day was spent just looking, spying on them, drilling holes in the wall or in doors to find access points with which to view the camp and see what's going on. So that left a third of the day for us to sort of get to know each other. Now with Doug, he had a tremendous mind. He wanted to talk about everything. I really didn't want to talk about everything. <laughs> he wanted to talk about politics. He wanted to talk about dogs and horses and mashed potatoes and food and going to boot camp and falling off the Canberra, and it just went on and on. We were extremely busy, and he was very entertaining. Yeah, I bet I know. He, he, he's a great guy. Uh, what kind of food did, did you all talk about? Now, being, being over there, you've told, you've told us before you didn't get a whole lot of food, so food must have been a topic of conversation, food that you missed. We were always hungry. We never got enough food. Actually, the military was winning the war in Vietnam, and our government was too stupid to figure it out. They were starving up north, so naturally we were starving along with them, plus the fact they didn't like us and they wanted to cut our rations. So when you're hungry, you think food. And everybody said a red-blooded American should think of steak and beer and stuff like that. I thought of scrambled eggs. I desired, lusted after scrambled eggs, liberally sprinkled with ketchup. And Doug, he, he was, uh, I'd, I'd have a beer with my can scrambled eggs, too, because I did like beer. Now, Doug came along, and he finally ended up with, he lusted after ice cream. He went all through uh, Howard Johnson's 28 flavors of ice cream, describing them, savoring them, discussing how he would roll it around his mouth and eat them. So he was fixated on that. Okay. And tell, tell me about uh, the, the pack that you and Doug made. Uh, I think it was 1967 or 1968. You, you made a deal uh, with one another. When you, when you got home from Vietnam, uh, what were you going to get together and have? Well, we were talking about releases, and at that time our plan was the junior people would get released first and the seniors last. So we knew we were going to be separated in any event and made a pact that we would get together when we got home and we would celebrate our reunion with our favorite foods. In this case, it turned out that we agreed to have a beer float. How'd that go? How'd that taste? Well, when we, when we got home, uh, he insisted that we complete the ritual. I was having second thoughts by that time, but uh, he consumed his basically in one gulp, savored it, savored the ice cream, and I had great difficulty getting it down because it was not the best mix in the world. Yeah, I remember that when he came to visit us in Palo Alto. When you got home, uh, he came over to the house, and, and you and Doug sat out in, in the living room, and uh, I had the opportunity. I was only 11 years old. I got to pour the beer, 
and uh, put the ice cream in it. You wouldn't let me have any of it at that time, though. Uh, I kind of wanted to try it myself. I saved it from something worse than that. <laughs> so one more question. I got one more question for you on Doug uh, before we move on and we start talking about this uh, propaganda machine that's so important to discuss today. Um, people want to know, you know, when he, when he came out, he came out with 256 names memorized, POWs, and many of them were MIAs. Our government did not know that they, they were alive and in captivity. So we certainly saved people's lives coming out with that many names. How did he memorize that many names? First of all, Doug had a retentive memory, almost a photographic memory. Second of all, he really worked at it. He practiced those names. He would recite them to me. He sang them to Old MacDonald Had a Farm. He classified them by service and by rank and alphabetically. Next to each name, he had a dog's name, a cat's name, uh, a kid's name, a social security number to verify the quality of the name that he was memorizing. For example, we had one guy from Columbus, Ohio in there as Doremus, Dormuff, and Dormouse. But all three of them had twin daughters, so that sort of verified that it was, in fact, Rob Doremus. Fortunately, wow. uh, he was able to retain those names and still can recite them today. That, that's just amazing. And I've heard him recite uh, those names. Uh, last time I saw him, I asked him to do it for me, and he would recite them so fast, I, I couldn't even understand them. I mean, to, to get the names out, I'd probably have to play a tape recorder and then put, put it in, uh, in slow motion or something to the, get the names. His debrief has really bugged him about that and said, slow down, slow down. And he says, it's just like riding a bike. You slow down, you're going to fall off it. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Um, what, what we need to do now, I'd really like to get into the topic of the propaganda machine, uh, like we talked about up front. The North Vietnamese were very effective at running a propaganda war. So before we do that, let's level set. Um, can you tell me where you are now? You're at the plantation prison but can you, uh, you've moved around a lot, and a lot has happened so far. Can you give me a quick summary of what, what prison they took you to and when and how you got to the plantation? My first stop in the prison system was the main prison at Maison Centrale, which they nicknamed the Hanoi Hilton. And the purpose there was to interrogate you for military information and political uh, contributions that you possibly could make. Uh, there's where most of the torture and the abuse occurred. After they finished with you there, in my case, they shipped me off to a place we called the zoo, which was over near the Bakmai airport, their municipal airport. Um, I spent a good deal of time there fighting the business of the bowing incident, the so-called confession to bombing Hanoi, that was the site of the mad bomber of Hanoi preparation and performance. When I finished with that particular sequence, they moved me to the third place, which was the plantation, uh, 17 Lainam Day, an old French compound for some rich or high official. That became the show camp, and that's where we are at the present time. 
Okay. All right. Perfect. Thank, thank you for doing that. So now what I want to do, um, one of the things that um, you did so, so well when you came back from Vietnam, over the years you've done, not only are you an avid reader, just like General Mattis, you also are an outstanding writer, and, and you've done a lot of writing about your time in Vietnam, and, and you've, you've created a book uh, that you've given to everyone in our family, and that book is entitled The Tales of Southeast Asia. So I've been going back and rereading these stories lately, and uh, I found a quote in here that encapsulates exactly the topic that we are talking about today. And if people listen to this quote closely, they will understand what was happening in 1967, 68, and 69 in North Vietnam. So dad, I'm gonna read you this quote and I'd ask you to react to it. Um, th this is Major Bai of the North Vietnamese Army speaking to you. He is the prison commander of all American prisoners of war in Hanoi in March of 1967. Major Bai says to you, Stratton, we have no intention of beating you on the battlefield. To the contrary, we are not even going to try. We are going to defeat you at home. We will make friends with any and every group in your country, regardless of their political persuasion, whether we agree with them or not. These groups will force your government to withdraw from South Vietnam, and then we will work our will. Your part in this is to make restitution for your war crimes by assisting us in convincing the American people that the war is illegal, immoral, and unjust. For this, we keep you alive. You will never return home again should you not become a good man and cooperate with us. So that, that says everything to me. Can, can you react to that? Well, that was a, a really a wake-up call for me because that gave me an insight as to the very nature of the enemy and the cause that we were fighting. And I realized that all the training I had for resistance and uh, military activity as a prisoner of war became secondary to countering the main thrust that they had, which was propaganda, the way they were going to become the second Japan of Asia. That's what he meant by working their will later on. We will become the second Japan of Asia. And if you take a look at history today, you'll see exactly that is what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So that is a key point to understand from this episode today. That was what the Vietnamese were, were doing. That's what they were up to. So not long after the bowing incident, um, you had a conversation with one of the guards that you all called Frenchie. And the bowing incident started a, a big turmoil, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And people wanted to know what had happened to you. So all kinds of 
official delegations were trying to get into Hanoi and they wanted to see you. They wanted to talk to you. They wanted to see what was going on with you. So you had a meeting with uh, Frenchie where Frenchie threatened to kill you if you did not meet with these official delegations. Um, you told him you wouldn't do it and he threatened to kill you. Um, can you tell me the story that you told me earlier about life insurance and that conversation you had with him because that you, you really did an excellent job with that. In preparing for these interrogations, you tried to have some sense of whether they had the authority to torture you on that day or not. Every sign was that Frenchie did not have the authority to torture me no matter what happened that day. The, the clear-cut sign of it was there was no sign of the head torturer standing in the back of the room. So I felt quite confident that I invited him, encouraged him to execute me. But I had a proviso. I was negotiating with him, and I told him, but you have to promise me that you will send a death certificate to my wife. <laughs> And that took him back. And he said, a death certificate? Why? And I said, she can't collect my insurance unless she has a death certificate. In fact, eight copies of it. So sure enough, he starts getting interested. He says, explain this insurance to me. (laughs) So I did. I, I was buying time. I also was stealing his cigarettes in the process and smoking them. And I explained life insurance, whole life, term and life. I explained how Betty Grable could insure her legs. I insured uh, cars and bicycles and diamond rings and on and on and on. But he kept going back to life insurance. And then he finally, towards the end of the day, he said to me, Stratton, let's see if I have this right. He says, if you collect this insurance to collect it, you have to die. I said, you got it. You know, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the, he's got it, he's got it. <laughs> and, and I said, you're absolutely right, I got to die. And he says, Stratton, you are a very stupid man. Well, I went back to the cell afterwards and got to thinking about it and said, you know, that is kind of stupid. The only way I can collect this stuff is to die. So I went home and I canceled, when I finally went home, I canceled all of the fancy uh, high-priced life insurance and got straight terms. So I did learn something in Vietnam. All right. And how long did all these conversations go on? You you were able to string him out for quite a while and avoid some other potentially uh, bad outcomes uh, like torture. You, you ha- had a conversation with him for quite some time. That one went on uh, virtually all day. The difficulty I... I determined later on that, in fact, although I enjoyed myself, and it's a funny story, I did a very stupid thing. I was giving him a free English lesson. And with that improved English, he would be a more effective interrogator to the next newly shot down guy. Right. So that's part of what they used your information sessions for, to learn better English? Oh, absolutely. There was no doubt about it. Okay. All right. Well, that is a funny story. I'm glad you could tell that, uh, the life insurance story. Um, Could you tell us, um, give us what were the orders and the directives and the policy 
uh, of the senior American POWs, like uh, Admiral Stockdale's, Commander Stockdale at the time, what was his policy regarding POWs accepting early release? The leadership that we had there in the person of James Bond Stockdale, Commander Stockdale was superb. He was one of the first ones to understand the very nature of what we're talking about. It was a propaganda war. And his basic thrust and philosophy was, if they want it, deny it to them, no matter what it was. You couldn't go wrong. Now, an early release could only redound to their benefit. So therefore, he came out with the order there would be no early release accepted. We all go together or we don't go at all. We all go as a result of our government's negotiation, not of any special deal that we or some traitor, some peacenik, had made with the Vietnamese government. If we provided uh, a united front to the Vietnamese, their propaganda effort would be stymied by as much as we showed strength. Okay. And, and so let me read one more quote from you. And again, I'm reading from uh, one of the same stories from the uh, Tales of Southeast Asia. Um, this is something else you wrote. Um, Our basic rules of survival were whatever they wanted, do the opposite, make them work for everything, and whatever they get, screw it up. So can you speak to that and, and tell everybody exactly what that meant? Uh, Stockdale, when he gave us that kind of a guidance, those kind of rules, really understood human nature. It was basically kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And he kept it simple for us. He knew that we would not being offered death that we could be made to do almost anything because of their torture. He tried to encourage us to resist to the point where we would lose control before we lost control so that when they got something out of it, we could sort of follow it up like Jeremiah Denton when they had tortured him, got him to appear in front of a camera. He's blinking his eyes and blinks out in Morse code the word torture. So he screwed that up. Nels Tanner, when he had to make a statement for a Swedish peace group, filled the story that he was telling with comic book characters as if they were members of the ship and the squadron that he belonged to. And that backfired him on uh, them, the peaceniks, in Europe. So that's what he meant by screwing it up. If they have you do something, screw it up as best you can. In my case, I chose to act like the Manchurian candidate and go through a bowing sequence. Right. And that ended up being very effective. So the, 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 the rules and the directives from, from the senior POWs, Admiral Stocktail and the other seniors were no early release. Uh, but ultimately in August of 1969, uh, three POWs were released. Doug Hegdahl was offered early release and refused it. He did not want to go. He told you he wanted to stay with you 
and uh, continue the mission. He had already destroyed five trucks by putting dirt in their gas tanks when the North Vietnamese were not looking. This man, this young man, he was only 21 years old at the time, I think, was performing such heroic acts, and there, there's just another one. They offer him a free ride home, and he refuses it. But eventually, um, things changed, and you relayed an order to Doug, and can, can you explain how that all came about? In the plantation camp, we had a lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, Herbie Stockman, who was sometimes isolated but always kept separated from us. Occasionally, we could communicate with him. All of us finally got together and realized if somebody was going to be volunteering to go home, why couldn't we plant someone in there who was our agent? And, of course, we elected Doug because he was the most junior, and our philosophy said the junior go first. He had all the names memorized. He had all the stories of the torture and the various ways it had been applied to various people. He had intimate knowledge of uh, two or three of the prison camps. He was a valuable asset to send back home, so we decided he would make himself available, not volunteer, not jump to the front of the line, but if they threw him out, he'd go out with our blessing. He did not want to do this. I passed the order to him. You will go. It's a direct order. And he said he wanted to stay. He was having a ball. He was destroying military equipment. They had stopped torturing him. He got to know everybody in, in the prison system. He was communicating with us all. He was essential to linking us up. He, he was living the life of Riley. He had no family, uh, no wife and children at home, and he was in hog heaven. But he had to go because we ordered him, and he did go. Yeah, I'll tell you what, having Doug uh, be one of, one of the people that left, it, it, what he, it was an absolute blessing to us and our family because when he came out, mom got to spend time with him, our entire family got to spend time with him, and uh, he brought great comfort to us. It, it was neat as a young boy to be able to sit in a living room with a guy who had been with you in Vietnam just a couple of months before, and he could really reassure us. Um, so I, I sure do love Doug for that and all the comfort he brought uh, to our family. So ultimately in August of 1969, three prisoners were released, Doug, was the only one that came out uh, with honor and with the blessing of the camp leaders. To put into perspective, I, I just want to give a little background of what's going on in this time. This is, the, this is a crazy time in, in the United States. Uh, the hippie movement is in full swing. Woodstock is getting ready to kick off. Woodstock actually kicked off 10 days after Doug Hegdahl was released. Woodstock kicked off in uh, upstate New York, August 15th of 1969. So the culture of the United States is just bizarre. I could only imagine what Doug thought of it when he got back from Vietnam. Uh, but that's a whole other story. Um, could you tell me, explain in a little bit of detail... What were the Vietnamese, what were the North Vietnamese trying to accomplish with these early releases? What did they think they'd get out of it? The Vietnamese uh, 
had a very solid plan for expounding, expanding their uh, propaganda. They were trying to say that they were unjustly being invaded by the United States and South Vietnam. They were, like many people even today, uh, were thriving in creating a culture of victimhood. If they could have these young Yankee air pirates release them, it would show how generous and kind they were. They selected people that they thought they had successfully brainwashed, who they were confident would advocate for them once they went home, and who lacked the moral courage, which they showed by accepting early release, that even if they got home and knew they were wrong, they would never say anything. They didn't have the guts. So they were pretty safe there. But then they made the people bringing them home look good. So if you went over to and came back with letters and a couple of prisoners, you were a, a person of authority, a person to be looked up to, a person of influence in the American peace movement. And uh, uh, generally speaking, American people would turn around and say, well, they let some people go, then not all bad. Right. Okay. Um, so Major Bai, the commander of the American prisoners in, in Vietnam, Ma Major Bai at one point came to you and told you uh, that uh, he had had you targeted for an early release, but basically you screwed it up because you didn't behave. <laughs> Is that how that go down? At one time, Major Bai told Doug that he was being prepared or considered for early release, but that Doug was not to tell me. Of course, naturally, Doug came back and he said, you won't believe what these turkeys just said and told me. I pretended that I didn't know that Doug was being prepared and that by association, maybe me too. They expected me to come in and to honey up to him and try to look good for a release. In fact, I became more obnoxious when I went in. They finally tasked me to do some prop written propaganda effort for him, and I summarily refused. And Major Bai came in personally to order me to do it. And since he was the senior ranking officer, I gave him the courtesy of international law, and I saluted him and respectfully refused. So he immediately threw me in solitary confinement for 45 days. Okay. So uh, several other notable uh, POWs were also offered early release and refused it. Um, Senator John McCain, for one, he, he was offered early release, and the reason he was so popular in their minds, I think, because his father was the admiral in charge of the Pacific Fleet at the time, so releasing him would be um, would have really good propaganda value to the North Vietnamese, and I think John McCain recognized that, obviously, and, and absolutely refused that. So, uh, again, very heroic on Senator McCain's part. Um, Next thing I'd like to ask you about is some other propaganda mechanisms that the North Vietnamese were using. So later, in 1972, when uh, Jane Fonda made her famous trip to Hanoi, sat on the anti-aircraft weapons, and had her pictures taken, uh, that was later. That wasn't until 1972, but... 
in the late 60s, were there others like her that would come in and uh, try to provide uh, provide aid and comfort to the enemy? And did they go on the on the the radio show, uh, the the North Vietnamese radio voice of Hanoi or North Voice of North Vietnam? I think it was, and and speak over the radio. And did they play those broadcasts uh, in your uh, cells? They had a loudspeaker in all the cells, and in the evening they would play the English version of the voice of Vietnam. We called her Hanoi Hannah. She'd be broadcasting to the troops down south, encouraging them to desert and try to undercut their morale. Um, Jane Fonda was, of course, their star performer. But to answer your question, I did not remember hearing any American that was so perverse, so sad, so much a traitor that did what Jane Fonda did. I don't remember any other American doing that. We were forced to see people like Cora Weiss, Women's Strike for Peace, David Dellinger, I don't know what outfit he belonged to, uh, the Berrigan brothers, the Jesuit uh, renegades, uh, people like that, as well as folks from Russia, Cuba, and, uh, well, from Australia. So... That what appeared on the, what not appeared, but what we heard on the radio, uh, from my mind, is characterized by uh, Jane Fonda. Yeah, that, traitor. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I want to get in, and, and I want to have you tell one last really funny story. This is another story I read a few days ago. And, and I, I just think it's hilarious how, how this all came about. Um, it, it has to do with care packages. So you, you did not get many care packages. You didn't get many letters. But can you describe what the Vietnamese did whenever you did get a letter or ever you did get a package? Um, how, what did the Vietnamese do to, to create a propaganda event with that? Any time that early on when we were given packages before Mr. Kissinger uh, negotiated a system for exchanging packages, uh, those packages would come in through uh, a peace group. In other words, you would give the package to some peace group, and they would put it into the Russian mail system, and it'd go through uh, Russia, go through Hanoi, and eventually hit the prison. They would muster the cameras and they would dress you up and sit you in front of uh, an uh, interrogator in full-dress uniform, and he would bestow this gift upon you. Now, my biggest memory was I got a shoebox-sized gift from you. Right, and and let let me set this one up. So I remember, I, I was a young boy at the time. I was probably eight, nine years old. And I, I remember uh, back at home in Palo Alto on Nathan Way uh, packing this shoebox with mom. Mom baked brownies, chocolate chip cookies, all kinds of other uh, cool stuff. And, and we spent a day packing this thing up for you and putting a lot of care into it and putting stuff in it that we uh, thought that you would really like. Uh, Mike, uh, son number two. Uh, had just gotten, I think for his birthday, a brand new harmonica. 
He was really proud of that thing. He loved it. And he Mike put that harmonica uh, in the care package for you. And, and we packed that thing all up and sent it to you. And, and so, and you received that. We found out years later when you came home, you received it. And, and, and tell me the story uh, of what happened when that got to you. Well, I'm opening the package in front of the cameras and the Vietnamese observer, and the package is a quarter full. So I said to him, figuring no one's going to hit me in front of the cameras, what the hell is this? Somebody rifled the package. <laughs> and he looked at me with shock and said, Stratton, what is your problem? Your post office takes some, Moscow takes some, our post office takes some, and you get your share. <laughs> I had no answer to that. What else could I say? So I'm going through the stuff, and I come across juicy fruit chewing gum. Now, if there's anything that makes me want to vomit, it's the smell, the taste of juicy fruit chewing gum. Now I figure my wife is sending me, uh, in lieu of divorce papers, juicy fruit chewing gum. And then I say, no, no, she's too kind. She wouldn't do that to me. So I bought it back to the cell and looked at Doug and said, Doug, there's something in here because Alice would never use good space and time and everything else to do this to me. So somewhere in here is a secret message. <laughs> so you are going to have to chew. Now there were six packs in there. You're going to have to chew every one of those sticks because I can't stomach it. And he said, well, what are you going to do? So I turned around and said, well, I am, I am going to put a, a caustic substance of some kind across the paper and the tinfoil to see if, uh, there's some secret writing in lemon juice or whatever I'd read about in the uh, stories and seen in the movies. And of course, but you had no lemon juice. Well, no, but I had a caustic substance, and it was <laughs> called urine. Not very much because we weren't getting very much water. So while he is cheerfully and with a great grin chewing mouths full of juicy fruit chewing gum and stinking up the room, I am urinating on my hands trying to make sure that every inch of the piece of paper was soaked and then check it dripping with urine for some sort of a secret message to appear. You're looking for the invisible ink to the come alive. The invisible ink was supposed to pop out and tell me <laughs> when I was going to be rescued. I had great hopes and there was nothing. I had nothing but wet hands and a terrible smell. That That's really funny. And so that puzzled you for the rest of the war, and you really didn't know what to make of it. But then years later, in 1973, when you came home, tell us how you found out what actually had occurred. I was swapping stories with a couple of our neighbors and good friends, took care of you guys while I was gone, Eddie McGuire and Tom Foy. And one of the things I remarked about was how they handled the mail and how everybody took their share and stuff like that. And I got to the juicy fruit thing and was describing it to him. And Eddie McGuire started laughing and started chuckling. And he said, I did that. I don't know if you remember uh, how he did it, but apparently your mother gave him the package to send to Cora Weiss. And yeah. uh, he, he shook it and it rattled. And he said, that's not good. So he stopped at a convenience store 
and he kept buying juicy fruit gum and stuffing it in the package until it didn't rattle anymore, and then he sent it off. So that's how it got in there. Yeah, that, that, that's hilarious. Um, I bet he got a good laugh out of that. Let, let me ask you one more question about, about the box. Did you ever get the harmonica that Mike sent to you? I think that the harmonica is playing Russian music someplace in the Moscow suburbs. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I think um, I, I really hope we did a decent job today describing and communicating the, the backward politics of the time, what was going on in the late 60s, the impact of the propaganda war that was being ra- uh, waged ag- against us by the North Vietnamese. It's a really tough story to tell. Uh, and, you know, you and I have talked about this um, uh, I've struggled with being able to tell this story to people in my age group that are just not that aware of how this war was fought. Well, when Jane Fonda heard uh, us telling our stories of torture, she finally went back to her Vietnamese masters and said, what about this? And uh, they came back and said, we violated the camp regulations And the camp regulations, of course, said that we'd commit treason, so we didn't obey them. But Jane Fonda then announced that we had gotten exactly what we deserved because we had violated the camp regulations. Yeah, that's uh, that's just disgusting, uh, terrible. Um, You know, I think we're at a point today. We've done the best job we could we can do to describe the politics, the propaganda that was going on. Uh, next time, uh, during the next episode, we're going to get to some really, really big events that started to unfold in late 1969, uh, in September of 1969 to be specific, that had a really big impact on the way POWs uh, were being treated. Uh, but uh, I don't want to talk about that uh, this time. Uh, let's save that for the next episode. Uh, I really uh, appreciate you doing another one of these uh, with me today. Uh, you tell the stories, awesome. And that I, I want to pass this on to you. I'm getting a lot of feedback from a lot of my friends. The way you tell these stories are phenomenal, and they really appreciate hearing this. So uh, thanks again. I'm really proud of you, and I love you. I love you a lot, and thanks. Thanks again for listening to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. This episode is dedicated to my good friend, Willis Von Lanier. Thank you for your spot-on feedback on a previous episode. Don't forget, anyone can contact us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or any other feedback for us. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.